Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jess Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're recording this on the day that it was announced the United States had a bad quarter of economic activity, a negative result. But it's not just the United States, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And Jeff, you're going to tell us that there are organizations, international organizations, that make economic projections about the future worldwide. And then later in the year, they say, maybe we were a bit too optimistic, and then they start downgrading. And this is important, not just with respect to whether or not we should look to those organizations for advice and guidance, but because it's part of the pattern. This is not the first time an organization has said, optimism, optimism, whoops, unexpected, Jeff. All day today, we're going to be getting that from the mainstream press. U.S. economy unexpectedly contracts. That's the word, right? That's always the word. (laughs) Unexpectedly. International Monetary Fund unexpectedly downgrades economic outlook. Yeah, and I think that's the important part. It's not that we like their models or we respect their models because they're, you know, I'm thinking about Stanley Fisher. Remember Stanley Fisher in 2014 who went to Sweden and said, you know, outside the U.S., he said to the audience in Sweden, you know, it's kind of weird how every year we have to apologize for being overly optimistic. And the reason they're overly optimistic is because they use the same DSG econometric models, which always model the same factors at the same rate at the same way, which is when the economy seems to be going well, they think it'll go well forever. They don't really understand why it doesn't. And so they're always the weakness that erupts is unexpected. So in highlighting the IMF's re- downgrade, a recent downgrade, we're not really saying that that's in, that in and of itself is important. What we're saying is that, as you've said, Emil, it's consistent with the pattern that we see time and time again. But more than that, it's noteworthy in that when even the IMF, using mainstream conventional econometric models, understands and sees that the economy is moving in the wrong direction, that's what's important because they're predisposed, they're predetermined to look at the economy, especially an economy like 2021, and extrapolate that forever forward into the future. So if 2021 seemed relatively good, they're going to believe that 2022 is even better and 2023 is even better and that we've achieved some long-run recovery baseline. So the fact that they say, oops, maybe something happened here, that's what's really noteworthy. When even the econometric models are starting to show contrary signs and even weakness, That's the part we pay attention to. Jeff, I've got three reasons. Let's see if I can remember them all, why these economic models don't work. You tell me if you agree. First reason is they don't look at the financial monetary system in their models. And that, of course, is the grease for the economic engine. That seems kind of important, right? I mean, that's true. No, it's not important. You don't need grease in your engine. There's a whole other story, but I mean, I think we said this before. We could do a whole episode on just why that is. And it goes back to, I mean, you're talking about the 1960s and 70s, positive economics, rational expectations, all that nonsense that has just gotten into. I think think it's, it's worth repeating that, yes, this is true. DSG models. They don't incorporate financial or monetary characteristics because economists have believed they didn't need to, which, I mean, even after what happened in 2008, you would think this stuff is kind of important. Maybe we should incorporate it somewhere. But again, get the whole argument behind rational expectations is really about there's no place in the math to do financial, financial markets or, or a monetary system at all. Our audience does not find these results unexpected. Because what do we talk about all the time, Jeff? The monetary system. 
the monetary system since October 2021 or May 2021 or December 2021 has been waving its hand and warning us the monetary system. That's not in the DSG models. Number two reason why these models don't work is because they use data and they were built after the Great Depression and Second World War until present time. And what did that period exclude? A, a depression, a worldwide economic depression. So it's not in their model. It's the uh, Milton Friedman plucking model. Everything's going to go back to the way it was because that's the way it did it in the post-World War II experience. And we're never going to have another depression because economists are in charge. No, and that's a huge, that's, when you get into the, the problem with statistics itself, the mathematics around statistics, it's really that weakness that always comes back time and time again, which is you're limited to looking at the future by measuring it from the past. You immediately assume well, because you're using past data that the future has to look like the past. When that's a faulty, if not fatal assumption to make, because we live in a dynamic world. Some things change. Some things change permanently. Even the old jump diffusion models, they never could accurately model how things change through time because at some level you have to realize everything changed and that there are things that we say, you know, we might say in the math are nothing more than random chance when chaos theory, fractals and everything else tells us that there's probably a much greater chance of things happening that you think is, is nothing more than random noise than you actually model in, in any of these uh, econometric efforts. So, yeah, if you... If you look at just the, I think that's an amazing point, Emil. You just look at the post-war era, and that's a long period of time. And it's, you know, 70 years, 60 years, whatever, whatever it is. You can say that, you know, hey, this is a permanent change in condition. But you also have to mm -mm. accept no. the possibility that it wasn't itself an isolated case. Even though it lasted as long as it did, maybe there was something some unique factors about it that meant that at some point it wasn't the the, the assumptions that that uh, you think about the that post war era were not going to be applicable at some point in the future and i think we're kind of there that's my complaint i hear what you're saying that you rely on historical data and you should be careful because maybe the future will be different but the data they're relying on historically they made sure to ignore <laughs> and exclude the discontinuities because that's never going to happen again because, because history and I don't, okay, moving on. Reason number three, Jeff, why these models are not so reliable is because they have to project optimism. They are economic, uh, what, priests, and they need to project optimism. They are in the economic expectations. If we say it'll be good, then people will act on our behave on our expectations. People will buy. If we tell them that, look out, there's trouble ahead, well, then they won't, and it'll be self-fulfilling prophecy. So even if we did model everything and we got bad news, we have to tell people, happy, happy, cheer, cheer, unicorns, rainbows, <laughs> shamrocks. It's doubly true there about monetary policy in particular, because as you're saying, look, policymakers have to project competence and they have to project success. They have to project lack of failure or whatever, however you want to characterize it. Everything that a central bank touches turns to gold and their models actually spit that out as an output. So if a central bank does something or it's also true for fiscal policies as well, because they're always assigned a multiplier greater than one, which is, I mean, has that ever actually happened? But the, the, the point is, it's largely psychological reinforcing. 
The policies like QE or low interest rates, whatever it happened to be, are already about reinforcing positive, optimistic psychology anyway, even though those things are upside down. You know, low rates don't lead to stimulus, but yet people believe that it is. And so if we have more realistic DSG models saying that, hey, you know, rates are going to go down, that's not a bad sign. It can reinforce pessimism, which to a central bank is kryptonite because we can't have any sort of pessimism. And I think that was that was what Stanley Fisher's 2014 message was really about, saying there's a reason why we're optimistic. And there's also a reason why we always have to apologize for being optimistic. And that's just what you just said, Emil. Those three reasons are it. The International Monetary Fund puts out lots of good data. I use their data on GDP and credit, great stuff. And they also do a very nice world economic outlook. It looks nice. I don't know how much you can get from it and expect it to be actually come to pass. Nevertheless, they put out projections, which are helpful for you, Jeff, right? And then they update those projections. And going back in time, what do we see, you know, for the year ahead, years ahead? And then the updates, do we see them typically get upgraded or downgraded? these expectations for economic activity. The weird thing is they do get upgraded and downgraded as the economy in time moves around, which is not how it's supposed to go. You would think that if they're modeling accurate factors, that they would say the economy is going to be fine. And then we're, we're sticking with that, uh, that projection, no matter what happens right now, because we're very confident about the future. But that's not what happens. Time and again, you see, for example, when we got into 2013, 2014 and 2015, Certainly in 2013 and 2014, uh, optimism was reflected throughout the models. But then as the global economy turned downward in 2014, in particular into 2015, the IMF didn't just downgrade those current years, 2015 and 2016 GDP estimates. They downgraded future estimates, too, because they were looking at today and saying, hey, we kind of got caught off guard by weakness. We're going to project that forever forward. And then in 2016, 2017, you had reflation and globally synchronized growth. What happened? Not only did the IMF models upgrade 2017, 2018 growth projections, but also 2019, 2020, 2021, forever in the future. And that's really not how it's supposed to go. And so what you see is these ups and downs in not just short run projections, but also long run projections that match what's actually happening in the current day. So bringing that up to the current day in terms of the last couple of years, what that meant was in 2021, as the economy seemed to perform better than most people expected, the estimates were upgraded. The IMF got very optimistic about not just 2021, but also 2022 and 2023. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the last estimates from the second WEO last year, which were put out last fall, they thought 2022 was going to be not quite as good as 2021, but another really good year, especially in the United States, especially in, in other places around the world, only to find out as things have been going wrong in 2022, now the downgrades have begun. Jeff, is there a particular region or country or industry that the IMF picked on and said, we are downgrading because this, or was it all just generalized and everywhere simultaneously? Everyone's not doing as well. Was there a point of emphasis? There was a point of emphasis, but it was generalized. The downgrades were generally uh, pretty much everywhere. But they were saying, you know, most of those downgrades everywhere were sort of like, okay, there's a hiccup in 2022, but maybe it'll be a little bit better next year, which is a common pattern too. 
know, go back to say mm-hmm. 2015, for example, as weakness really started to bite, especially in emerging markets in 2015, the IMF said, well, we'll see some weakness here, but 2016 is going to be so much better. And so that's a common pattern to once they start downgrading to think, well, yes, this was unexpected, but it won't last very long. And so that's part of the pattern as well. But in this particular, as you're just as you're just alluding to, this particular downgrades uh, downgrades in the WEO for uh, April of 2022 really focused upon China. China was where the downgrades were not just in the short run, but also the long run. And also looking at it as, you know, hey, this is some really serious stuff. They're thinking the IMF models anywhere thinking that GDP will be less in 2022 than they were thinking that it would might have been in 2020. So they're looking at the Chinese economy as as the Chinese economy actually has performed over the last year and a half as kind of slowly sliding downward forever toward maybe some sort of an abyss. And the uh, the amount of downgrade in this current WEO for, compared to where they were last. So the last one at the last half of last year was sort of, yeah, China's kind of weak. And now they're thinking China might be really weak. They're looking at, I think it was 4.3% GDP growth for all of 2022, which let's remind everybody there was a time when everybody thought 8% GDP growth in China was equivalent to a global recession. And now we're talking about 4.3% as sort of the transition to something around that forever. I feel like betting against the IMF. I know what they're saying. They're saying the Chinese economy is not healthy. And I want to later ask you if they're just pointing to what's recently happened in Shanghai and spreading to Beijing, or are they saying it's that's the reason they're downgrading? Let me ask you that question right now before I segue to my other thought. Did they give a reason? Did they say it's a generalized downgrade economy-wide, or did they say COVID? I mean, they're recording record exports. I would think that'd be a great, great time. So what is the problem think, with right? China? No, and actually the IMF has taken a more measured and almost honest approach with China. They're saying, yes, they have long-run problems here. They're becoming a material issue. But it's also Shanghai. It's also COVID. It's also the government's repeated uh, tendency to interfere in the economy for other reasons, which to us means that's just what the, the, they've been doing in response to the economy. But the IMF took a very balanced approach and said, China's got some long run issues that these short run political interferences and COVID zero aren't helping all that much. Well, I'm going to bet against the IMF regarding China's GDP number. Because, as Michael Pettis often writes, always, the GDP number is a input, whereas in the rest of the world, it's an output. So GDP in the United States, Japan, Canada, Europe, that is the result of economic activity that year. We measure the economic activity, calculate the GDP. In China, it's asked backwards. The GDP number is announced at the beginning of the year, and the economic activity is made to happen whether it's economic, profitable, or not. So I bet by the end of the year, it will come in where it was supposed (laughs) to come in as per the party, zero COVID or a million COVID, it doesn't matter. So I'm betting that the GDP number will be good, whereas of course the underlying economy, as you're saying, Jeff, as the IMF is saying, trouble. And the irony to that is, you know, since the 19th Party Congress, they've been on this, uh, this uh, Xi Jinping thought, which prioritized the quality of growth over the quantity of growth, which the irony is, as we talked about before, I can't remember what episode it was, where it looks like as China slows down, less and less quality growth, more and more of this fluff, as you're pointing out, the, 
Chinese authorities say this is the number we're going to meet, and the government, whether it's mostly in the in the provinces and the municipal governments, say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna build stuff we don't really need to meet that GDP number. So, ironically, as the Chinese go more and more toward quality growth, the less quality they get in their GDP numbers. Jeff, is there anything else that we want to go over in your article here before I give two recommendations to people of economic analysts that do make projections and have been correctly predicting inflections in the world and national economy for for many, many years that I've been following them? Anything else we should cover in your article? No, and the important point is, again, you said it earlier, and I think that was really the, the thing. You know, everybody, this is unexpected weaknesses because unexpected weakness in the global economy, unexpected weakness in China or as COVID or something we can easily dismiss. But we've been warning about this stuff because it's consistent when, with our monetary view. Euro dollar number five. If you think about what's happened since last May in the terms of euro dollar number five, this is what you would expect to happen in the real economy, not just in China, but elsewhere around the world. The American US GDP negative print, that is consistent with a euro dollar number five, as is what's going on in currency markets as well as financial markets too. All of It's not just one thing or another. It's not just Shanghai. It's all of these things together in a global comprehensive picture. Well, Jeff, economists aren't just shaman and doing rain dances. There are real economists out there who do correctly predict these cycles. And I have two in mind that I want to recommend to the audience. The first one is Economic Cycle Research Institute with Lakshman Achuthan, who I've been following for years, almost coming on a decade, six years, five, seven years now, correctly predicting the inflections for years. So fantastic work by them. And the other one is uh, Hedgeye, led by Keith McCullough. Again, both predicting correctly inflections in growth and inflation rates worldwide. That's it for me, Jeff. All right, Emil, take care. 